If you would please open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And Lord willing, we're going to uh, get through verses 10 through 13. Uh, last week I was hoping to at least get into verse 10, but we kind of got bogged down there in the latter part of verse 9. Uh, considering who it was that Jesus died for. And so we return here again to Hebrews chapter 2. And let us, let us read from verses 4 through 14. Verses, I'm sorry, verses 5. Let's pick up at verse 5 through 14. The word of the Lord says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visiteth him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see... Not all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it was appropriate for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect, Through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children for which God hath given me. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Holy Word. You noticed I stop at verse 13, uh, which is really a good stopping place for for introducing our message today. This week, uh, during our family worship time, uh, we're in the book of Daniel. And we were reading in Daniel chapter 4. Many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with that book. And that particular part of the historical narrative is where King Nebuchadnezzar, you may recall, he steps out, we can imagine, on a balcony there uh, on his castle, his you know, big throne that he has built. And he looks out over all the dominion of Babylon and he boasts in pride and says, you know, look at all of this. I have done it by my own strength and my own power. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And now he had just received a warning that he was going to be brought low. And we don't know exactly how much time transpired before he made that mistake of boasting in his own strength. But we noticed how that shortly after that, he receives the judgment. He receives the curse that God brought against him, which was he was going to be made to eat grass. He was going to have his understanding, the faculty of his reasoning removed from him and made like a cow, made like an animal. And he's actually eating grass. And his, his, you kids know the story. You, you use your uh, imaginations to see Nebuchadnezzar, what he would look like, his hairs growing long. Uh, the text actually says his nails grew very long, like a bird's, bird's claws. And all of that, at the end of that narrative, 
at the very end of the chapter, he's humbled. And he gives God all the glory and all the honor. Now, the way that I tried to apply that in our family worship is I said, let us step back and see that God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar in all of his wisdom exactly how Nebuchadnezzar needed to be dealt with. I mean, think for a moment, Nebuchadnezzar, he could have uh, maybe had someone in his family die, you know, and that would have maybe brought about some sort of soul searching or some sort of chastisement in his life. Um, God could have brought a, an, an invading army and take half of his kingdom. Well, that would humble a guy pretty quick, right? If he got defeated and he lost half of his empire. But in God's wisdom, he knew that Nebuchadnezzar needed exactly to be humbled in that way. And it was perfectly fit for him because it did exactly what God had designed in his wisdom to accomplish. I say all of that to say we're coming into here to Hebrews chapter 2 at a point in this sermon that this preacher is really preaching to these early Hebrew Christians. And he's getting into the nuggets of exactly why it is that God chose to have a Messiah come in human form to suffer and to die. What it does is it draws our attention to the sovereignty of God and also the wisdom of God at the same time, or you could say on the other side of the coin, draws into focus the work and the person of the Messiah. Now, last week I kind of gave you guys an outline of Hebrews chapter 2. And it's really significant because in Hebrews chapter 2, there begins to be introduced which will be picked up through the entire epistle of Hebrews. Two important things. You remember what they were? The introduction of the person of the Messiah. He's arrived and he has a particular work to do. That concept's coming to the surface here in these verses that we're seeing in chapter 2. And also his offices which serve in the new covenant, which is a better covenant. And all of that kind of begins to come to the surface here in chapter 2. So today in verses 10 through 13, God's sovereignty, His wisdom are going to come before our attention. And more importantly, the specific work of the victorious captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, is brought forth for our consideration. So let us look here at verse number 10 to get us started. Verse number 10. Let's consider just the first half of the verse. That after verses 5 through 9, where redemptive history has kind of been put on display, uh, God... Uh, bringing man into his special preview, his special attention. Uh, What is man that you would consider him? This man who's made a little lower than the angels. What is man that you put all things under him? And oh, but now we see not all things are under him. Why? We looked at that because of his rebellion, because of his fall. And how is that going to be rectified? All the way up to verse number 9. His uh, only begotten son would come and he would taste death for every single one of those men whom he has decided to give to Jesus. And so he goes right into verse number 10 for anyone who would question perhaps this wisdom or this approach with this phrase for. So it's a continuation of the thought in verses 5 through 9. For it became him. Some of your modern translations, a good translation, it is say, or it was fitting for him. Well, for who? Well, for God. It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So here in verse number 10, the first half of verse number 10, we are confronted with the reality about God that is often and frequently described and found in the Scriptures. And you see it in point number one in your handout. And it's this. God does things 
according to His own sovereign will and wisdom. And furthermore, His ways of doing things, beloved, are always the best ways. Amen? Whether we like it or not, God's law and God's Word, it is the absolute standard for all truth. Amen? Amen. And when our thinking or our opinions, they come to differ or come up against God's revelation of His truth, we are always in the wrong. There's no exceptions. And this sovereignty of God's law, this this sovereignty and this wisdom of God in this first half of the verse is brought to our attention in that phrase, it was appropriate for Him. It was deemed wise to Him. Well, to who? Well, to God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. The subject, of course, is talking about God. That's the hymn in this verse. We see that as a continuation of verse number 9. The one who gave the grace to send His only begotten Son to taste death for every man. So in verse number 10 here, the writer begins to introduce this concept of the sovereign throne rights of God to appropriately view the condition of fallen man and do it exactly the way He's going to do it. But why would he be introducing that here at this place? Verses 5 through 9, he's laying out the need of redemption for the fallen sons of Adam. In verse number 9, it culminates or climaxes in the fact that he provided that redemption in his son. So why does the writer step back here and say it was appropriate for him or it was deemed wise for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things? to bring many sons into glory this way, right? Well, why does he do that? Kind of interesting thought to have. Well, remember that the audience who's receiving this letter, they were Hebrews, right? They were Hebrews who were brought up and surrounded by a Jewish culture. And no doubt, their family members and perhaps their people they worked with in the marketplace and byways, who were still practicing Judaism, still looking for the Messiah. Who knows? Maybe had friends or families in Jerusalem that participated in the calling out for Jesus to be sacrificed. They would have been telling them, no doubt, remember what the law of God says, dear family member who's been wrapped up in this thing called Christianity. Remember the the law word of God. And they would have been whispering in their ears the law from Deuteronomy 21-22 that said, if any man has committed sin that's worthy of death and he is to be put to death, let him be hung on a tree. Or that is a cross. Surely it is silly their friends and their family would have been telling these Hebrew Christians. Uh, They would have at least implied this. To think that the Messiah whose boots were supposed this victorious Messiah that they were looking for, whose boots were supposed to be covered in the blood of his enemies, and their enemies would be crucified or allow himself to be crucified as some common criminal upon a tree. No, no, their friends and families would have been telling them, this man named Jesus that you guys have been deceived in believing in, he's nothing more than just another zealot, another religious charlatan of the promised Messiah who we are still waiting for. Well, as you see in point number two in your sermon notes, 
the inspired writer of Hebrews, by interjecting this thought, our attention to the appropriateness of the sovereign God of doing it this way, the Messiah redeeming and rescuing his people this way, reveals to them that the roadmap to glory, or that is the roadmap to salvation, which entails the Messiah to suffer and to even be crucified upon a tree, the horrible death in their eyes, or in verse 9's language, to taste death, it stood in direct contradiction to man's wisdom. It stood in direct contradiction to man's wisdom. We have evidence here in verse number 10 with this introduction. It was fitting for God. It was appropriate for God. It became God for whom are all things and by whom are all things to bring many sons into glory through the sufferings of His Son. It's evidence I remember Dr. Peter Masters used to always say of the divine glory or the divine authorship of God upon the gospel message. Because AJ, if me and you were to come up with a plan, surely it wouldn't entail us sacrificing our own son who was spotless and pure to save ill-deserving rebels who deserved hell. We would come up with a different way. Notice with me now in verse number 10 how now acknowledging that, hey, set your wisdom aside and now look at the sovereignty and the wisdom of God, how that comes through. In the first half of verse number 10, the sovereignty and the wisdom of God for who it is that devised this plan of redemption. First of all, we see God's sovereignty, as you see in your notes, in this expression, for whom are all things. Now that simply means for the sake or the benefit of. In other words, prior to anyone's objection about a suffering Messiah, the writer points out this important truth through his Christian friends here who may have had their family members and their co-workers whispering in their ears. And it's almost as if he's saying, hey guys, remember that everything that exists, it does so for the sake and the benefit of God the Creator. Before we begin to question the sovereign God and what He has presented through the revelation of His Son, superior to all the holy men of past, superior to the revelations of the angels, remember that God can do what He pleases. Because everything that exists is for His sake and for His use and for His benefit. I think this point that the writer is trying to bring to the surface for them before they entertain any objections by their friends or family comes through nicely elsewhere in Scripture as you see in your notes from Revelations 4.11 where the Scripture says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and here it is, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Not only is God's sovereignty brought to the forefront to help bolster their faith in what God's doing, but also God's wisdom that He knows best is brought to the surface as well to help, to help fortify them from all the naysayers. The phrase, by whom are all things, it simply means, but powerfully means, through whom or by whom, and it speaks of efficient cause of something. So, the writer here also closes the mouth of all of those who think that the suffering, the death of the Messiah must have somehow 
been a score point on the scoreboard by the evil one in this cosmic game of good and evil between the devil and God. No, 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 no. By this phrase, of whom are all things, the first cause of all things, the writer is reminding them that God the Father, He is the author of this plan, which will include the murder of His beloved Son. And this same truth about God's causation, His wisdom in causation, especially in the context we're reading right here, comes through crystal clear as you see in your notes from Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where the Bible says, Him, referring to Jesus, being delivered or has been delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Was it an accident, was it, friends? It wasn't the evil one out manipulated God's plan and somehow snuck in a point here or there. Oh no, we see here by whom are all things, the cause of all things, the one who authors all things. It was, he was given up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. To continue the verse, but ye, the evil rebels, the soldiers who had killed Jesus, ye have taken him and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The very moment someone were to question the wisdom of the penal substitutionary death, which we learned a lot about last week of Jesus, that is the Messiah, enacted here by the will, by the cause of the Father, the writer of Hebrews is prepared to rebuke them in their place for failing to remember what God has so often revealed about Himself all throughout the Scriptures and most powerfully through the mouthpiece of Isaiah who we are reading this morning. As you see in your notes from Isaiah 55.8, God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Now standing back and considering the overall context of verses 5-9, through we see that the God of the covenant of works that was initiated in the Garden of Eden upon the great fall of man. Beloved, He did not in any ways lose. He did not in any way, any ways fail. Because we learn here in verse number 10 at the opening verse, as it's drawing our attention to His sovereignty and to His wisdom as the causation of all things, we see that all of that, the fall of man, it would culminate. Or that means reaches highest degree of significance. It's highest degree of meaning, the fall of man, in His gospel plan by what? Bringing many sons who were ill-deserving into glory through the suffering of His Son. It was all part of God's redemptive, wise plan. Oh, think for a moment of the love of God for a moment. We see in verse 8, remember, where we are reminded that right now, we see not all things under the rule and the dominion of man as was intended at creation. Why? Because of man's willful rebellion and failure. Not God's part. Why in the world would God save anyone, let alone many sons of glory, in this divine plan? Why would He in Acts 2.23 have the foreknowledge and the decree to send His only begotten Son to save any of the wretched lot who had transgressed against Him? Well, the Scriptures tell us why, friends. 
as we meditate upon the glorious motivating love of God in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is the compelling love of God that is on display in the first half of verse number 10. That divine, wonderful gospel plan He could have done whatever he wanted because remember, friends, all things existed for him and through him are all things. He didn't have to save one person and they would have gotten exactly what they would have deserved. With that in view, the fall of man, the fall of us, the love of God. I submit to you that it is not until a person sees themselves in light of the truth of God's holiness and in His sovereignty and His holy law, which will reveal the wickedness of their hearts and how much they truly deserve an eternal hell, will someone ever come to understand the love of God through the sufferings of His Son, Jesus Christ. They have to first see themselves in light of standing before a holy God and how much they truly deserve hell. And then and only then will they understand the cross of Jesus. Well, this is the sovereignty and the wisdom of God on display in the first half of verse number 10. But there's a particular part of His wisdom that begins to come to the surface now in the rest of the verse. Let's look at that together. He desires or He wills that many sons be brought into glory. His method of that is by bringing the captain of their salvation to suffer on their behalf. And the result is that that captain of salvation in some way we're going to consider is perfected. Interesting. So let us consider God's will in His wisdom, God's method, and God's results. First, let's consider his desired will with regard to having many sons brought into his family, or as his language says, brought into glory. God is glorious, and he is desiring, he wills in his sovereignty and in his wisdom that there are many sons brought into his glory that he will, in verse 13, give unto Jesus Christ. Now this phrase, sons of glory, It's a familial phrase, simply meaning that it's referencing the adoption by God as the adopter of man into his glorious spiritual family. But there's a big problem here, especially of what the writer's already taught us in verses 5 through 8. And that is, God is holy, and sinners cannot be within his family unless they are first purified or they're sanctified, as verse 11 talks about. They can't even come into His family. They can't come into His glorious presence. Because not only does God hate sin, but the Scriptures are clear, He also hates the sinner. Wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying that God hates? Yes, He does. He does. That is the witness of the Bible. It's not popular nowadays. And I know people don't like to look at God as you know in that view. But listen... Uh, how the psalmist says this, and this is all throughout the Bible, but you see it in your notes from Psalm 5.5. The foolish, or that is the prideful, the boaster, 
They will not stand in God's sight. Thou, referring to God, hatest all workers of iniquity. And so, God's desire, His will is to bring many sons into glory, but the problem, the contention is, is that these sons who He wishes to bring into glory are rebels. They're workers of iniquity. And thus, the sinners will need, won't they? One who can represent them as a man before the court of God's justice, someone who, as a human, with all of the essential properties and all the common infirmities that are essential to a human nature, such as a body, a soul, a mind, a heart, and a will, such a someone will be required to stand before the law of God, the holy law, which must be satisfied in order to answer the demands of God's perfect justice. God cannot, because of the nature of who He is, turn a blind eye to the sins of these men, these people that He wants to bring into His family or adopt. Now, of course, in view of verses 5 through 8, we would ask, where could such a person be found? It's not going to be through the natural descendants of the first man, Adam, who in verses 5 through 8 ruined it all, right? Paul says, you see in your notes elsewhere, in Romans 3.23, all, and he's referring to all the descendants of Adam, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well then, if that's the predicament, but God's will and His sovereign wisdom is to bring these many sons to glory, what method in God's will, wisdom will be employed in order that sinners can come into His glorious spiritual family? Well, as you see as point number three in your sermon notes, God's method is to reconcile these many sons, these fallen sinful sons, into glory, into His family, by covenant with Jesus. Who? Jesus, the eternal Son, in chapter 1, verse 3, is described as being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. And God the Father covenants it. He covenants, He compacts, He agrees. This is fleshed out in Ephesians 1.11 with Jesus. That Jesus would come into time and space in history. He who is equal with God in all ways. And He would take upon Himself a real and an actual sinless human nature. Much like the one Adam had before the fall. And He would represent the sons of glory in this righteous court of God. And God is the judge. He would require that the penalty for all of these ones who He wants to adopt in His family would have to be appeased. The penalty would have to be paid for. This is vital to the very nature and essence of God's character. Even if it required the very blood of His own Son. That's the will of God. That He wanted to bring into His family rebellious, hell-deserving sinners to the extent that He would send His only begotten Son to take their place in death. Well, was it accomplished? Did this method work? Second, let us consider the accomplishment of the method. Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry. Jesus in the text, look at your verse there in verse 10. Jesus is said to be made the captain 
of their salvation, these sons of glory who God is desiring to bring into his family. Now this title, Captain, it's found four times in the New Testament. And every single time it's only used of Jesus Christ. The word means multiple things. It can mean a hero of a city. It can be uh, used in the sense of founding a city, establishing a city, being then therefore afterwards a guardian and a protector of a city, the namer of a city. It can be used to delineate someone who's the leader of a tribe or a nation or a family, head of a household. Uh, It could even be used at times in the Greek to delineate a military leader, which fits closely with how it's being used here today. When we think of captain, we think of a leader, don't we? But it also can be used to be uh, understood as someone who's an originator or author, just someone who's writing a book or a letter. And so with all of that understanding in our minds, of wondering if God's method was accomplished in bringing these sons into glory, let us consider that Jesus... As a man, suffering the most severest temptations of the devil, meaning the devil tempting Jesus, don't go through with this. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Garden of Gethsemane was all about. Don't go through with this. Why in the world would you want to suffer the wrath of the Father for a bunch of ill-deserving, rebellious sinners? Dirty. Remember, Lucifer's a fallen angel. Right? We're made a little lower than the angels. Jesus, he would be saying. Why in the world would you want to die for them? They're pigs. They're scum. They're on the lowest totem pole. Why in the world would you even do that? But Jesus, as a man, suffering that temptation, he did what? In his earthly ministry, he obeyed, brothers and sisters, even unto death. And he was successful. He was successful in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And through that humiliation, we call it, and his resurrection, the exaltation, he fulfilled all, he accomplished all of those titles, didn't he? He became in his humiliation and his exaltation our hero. He became our military leader. He became the author of such a great salvation. He became the guardian of this kingdom of God that now he has founded and he has authored. He is indeed the captain, the victorious captain, he can be called, of our salvation. And so God's will to bring sons into glory, oh, it was accomplished. The method worked perfectly. And God's wisdom was on display before all the demons and the devil himself to show what a laughingstock they were when they saw Jesus dying upon the cross. Now we have to consider a third thought in verse number 10. The writer says that Jesus was perfected in his sufferings. This was the result of God's will. And God's method by the agreement of Jesus Christ, the eternal son, to die and to sacrifice and go over his life. This is the result. He was perfected. The inspired writer has spent, remember, a great deal of time, a great deal of energy convincing us in the original audience up to this point of the holiness, of the divinity, of the superiority of Jesus. You remember that? Is he implying here? That Jesus stood in need of something else in order, as the text said, 
to be made perfect or considered perfect. Now you remember last week we said it's important, yes, to have a translation of the Bible, to know what the Bible says, but it's far more important to know what the Bible means. Right? Surely then, it's clear from all the Bible and what it says about Jesus that in the common way we use the word perfect, meaning absolute moral perfection, Jesus' sufferings didn't perfect him in that way. It wasn't like this was an exercise. Uh, I don't go to the gym. It's funny, some people were talking about the gym this week, and I was clueless, you know. They're all talking about going to the gym. And, you know, it wasn't like Jesus went to the gym at the cross, and by successfully accomplishing his goal of his routine or his workout, shed so many pounds, whatever you want to, you know, you work with me on the illustration here, that he did that, and by enduring that and accomplishing that discipline, that he was somehow purged from some moral defect. Nor can the author be meaning from what we know in the testimony of all of Scripture. Did Jesus go through with obedience unto death upon the cross in order that God's method of bringing many sons into his presence and his glory, that they be sanctified? Nor could it mean that it added moral perfection unto Jesus. So what in the world does it mean? Well, look at your notes. I believe our answer lies in the meaning of the Greek word that is translated perfect. This Greek word, teleao, this word carries with it, as you see in your notes, the idea to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end. And thus in this light, and especially in the immediate context of the sacrifice of Jesus for His people, or you could say for His children, verse number 13, it seems that the correct interpretation, the true meaning, isn't on the surface what it says, but is that God used the discipline, or we could say the suffering and the death of Jesus, to completely qualify His Son to fulfill the office office of the captain of salvation, as we're going to learn next week, and the high priest. But how so? How did going through this experiential, as a man, suffering, agony, mockery, and death, how would that brother better qualify Jesus to be a leader, to be a better high priest? Well, first of all, as you see in your notes, A, It's only through a real personal suffering which ultimately resulted in death could Jesus win, have a victory, a decisive victory over death and the devil and deliver His brethren from the fear of death. And not only the fear, but it's penal terror. Meaning, we're all in here going to die someday. But there's a vast difference between he who trusts in Christ when he's on his deathbed than the person who's a non-believer. Because they will still suffer the penal terror and uh, condemnation that they deserve in God's wrath. But for the Christian, he's just passing through, isn't he? One of the most precious, beautiful things is to be next to the bed of someone who rests all their eternal hope in Jesus Christ. I remember at the Bible study chapel, I had the privilege, yeah, it was a privilege to come next to Brother Sonny 
He was an older gentleman in our church, and he was passing away. And it was one of my kind of first hospital visitations, you know. I'm still green behind the ears. I'm all nervous. Am I going to know how to comfort him? I didn't need to comfort him, brother. He was comforting me. He was so calm. He was so ready to go and meet the Lord. Jesus, by this experiential suffering as a man, we will learn next week, had a victory over death who was in the power of the devil and he took it right back away from the devil. Secondly, how does this more qualify the son to be this leader, to be this sympathetic high priest? Well, you see, B, only by the suffering could he be a sacrifice of propitiation. Big word simply meaning uh, appeasing satisfying God's anger on our behalf. Because we, as we learned last week, we deserved to be the ones who hung on the cross. And so it was only appropriate then through the suffering and the death of Jesus that He could take our place. Thirdly, only by suffering could He be prepared to sympathize with us when we suffer trials and temptations. John Owen, he goes on for about 10 pages on this point of how this experiential suffering of the Messiah really better qualified or completed him, prepared him to be the sympathetic high priest, which he is now doing for us right now. Because it's one thing, brother, to pray to someone, or I shouldn't say it like that. It's, it's a much different thing to relate to someone who's walked the mile that you're walking through. It has more weight with it, doesn't it? It's not as, you could put it this way, it's not as if Jesus comes as a Messiah and he's this superhuman that went through, yeah, some things, but he still stood outside of our experience. So when I go to him in prayer, it would be like, you know, uh, Lord, you know, I'm really suffering some terrible temptation today. Not like you ever did that, but nonetheless, you know it's real, Lord. You see, that's how the prayers would sound. How, how are you going to feel like he's really understanding your heart's plea and your condition? And so only by suffering could he come to this place of accomplishment, of full preparedness to serve in the office of a high priest and the captain of our salvation. According, in case there's any objectors still out there, according to the divine wisdom of God. God wanted Jesus in his both manhood and in his divinity to go through this so that he could fulfill the office. Because let me tell you, friends, the angels aren't very sympathetic to your eyes needs. They don't get tempted. They're, in a sense, you know, that, that, that epic uh, uh, event has already occurred. There's not one rebellious angel in heaven right now, nor will there ever be. And they see us down here, these humans struggling in our flesh and in our thoughts and everything. There's no sympathy for them. What's wrong with these people? But Jesus, our high priest, rest assured, he understands. And thus Jesus' perfections wasn't in any way adding something that he lacked as the eternal son. But as a man, it provided him the merit, the authority, and the sympathy to fulfill the victorious captain office of now leading and ministering to his people. Let's look together here at verse 11. It's referring to the union now of Christ and his people. Jesus as a man, he sacrificed his life so that these brethren, these many sons of glory could be brought into the presence 
of God's family. They could be, in other words, reconciled back into the Father. However, as the divine eternal Son, beloved, not as a man, let's step away from it. We focus a lot on Jesus' humanity and the necessity that He has made a man in order to bring these sons of glory into the family of God. Let's step away for a minute and shift our focus that He was also, remember chapter 1, the divine, eternal, divine, eternal Son of God. It's important that we always understand that He never once forfeited the same zeal for holiness, the same zeal for law that the Father had. And that included the hatred of those who committed sins against that law. Allow me to say it another way. As the divine eternal Son, Jesus did not in some way ever have or possess a lower hatred of law-violating wicked rebels than His Father did. To conclude so is to vastly misunderstand both man and God who make Jesus up. Now the reason I'm bringing this up and the reason it's so important for us to grasp is because it's vital of how we're going to make sense of what we see in verse number 11 with the phrase, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. He couldn't call them brethren while they still remain unsanctified. While they still had the cloud, the deserving cloud of guilt while they still were waving the banner and their boastfulness of the rebellion against God's law, it would be a reproach to the dignity of His divinity to call such a ones His brethren. What has changed? It was not until Jesus, as the verse says, the sanctifier, until He purged and He sanctified His brethren could He completely, as both man and holy God, who hates sin and sinners, be made one with them? His cross work, beloved, united His complete person with all of those who the Father would give, would give Him. His complete person. Jesus made it a man who could be tempted and who could suffer temptation, have the common infirmities, but yet sinless as us. Oh yes, he could sympathize with us, right? And he could call us brethren. But as God, he could never call an unsanctified, an unredeemed person his brother. So you see how the cross, it brings the complete person of Jesus Christ in complete unity with the sons of glory. And that brings us to our fourth point in your sermon notes. This phrase, all of one, it denotes solidarity. Just a word that means union of cause, union of purpose that exists oftentimes in a family. Dads, have you ever been, uh, or husbands, and this could work both ways in a marriage, have you ever been really excited about a cause and you're trying to get the rest of the family on board with it and they just won't come on board with it? You just don't get very far, do you? Uh, in a marriage, one person's going in one direction and another's going another direction, and it's a train wreck waiting to happen. Just no progress is being made. In Jesus, bringing these sons of glory into his family, now his brethren, by the gift of his spirit, 
We are made to share in His common cause. Our hearts, our hearts, our hurts, sometimes it hurts, but our hearts, our hearts flame with the same love of God's law as Jesus's did. Our hearts beat the same passion and zeal for the spreading of the good news of God's redemptive plan for man through the suffering Messiah as Jesus did. You see, this solidarity, it, it, it happens that way when one is brought into the covenant family of God. Come hell, come high water, they are not going to let go of the hands that their, of the plow uh, that, that, that their hands have been fixed to. By grace alone, through faith alone, every convert is given Christ's spirit. And upon conversion, that believer comes into a common zeal and cause one with Christ. A solidarity that cannot and will not by God's power ever be broken. Now, of course, we know he's the captain. He is the bigger. He is the stronger brother. We are what? The clumsy and the weaker little brother. Get that into your heads. It's okay you're clumsy and weaker. You're not going to be like Jesus. Oh, but you share the heart of Jesus. You share the zeal of Jesus. He's the captain. Brothers and sisters, we're the low rank of private. But... He, by taking on humanity and accomplishing our cleansing, taking away our guilt and our condemnation in the righteous court of God, He can now with pride look upon you, Grizz, and say, that's my brother. He loves the law of God. He loves gospel truth, Nolan. And Jesus looks at you and He says, that's my brother in this great campaign that's still going on now against all the forces of darkness. Even in your moments of weakness, even in your moments of failure. When you don't pick up the rifle in the trenches along with Him, He still looks and He says, that's my brother. He won't disown any of those who He has purchased and who He has birthed within their heart that same common fire and zeal for the truth of His glorious church. Now, very quickly, let's look at verses 12-13 through where He cites in response to everything that's been said here in verses 10 and 11. There's a lot there, isn't there? He, he, he gives three citations of Old Testament text to support what he just said. This glorious exaltation of the Son, of bringing many sons into glory through His sufferings. He uses three citations. The first one's found in verse 12, and it's Psalms 22, 22. Now, Psalm 22, the whole chapter, it's the most cited uh, psalm in the New Testament that points to its messianic fulfillment. Many of the words or words that are verbatim ones that were repeated upon the cross or the prayers on the cross. And when we're considering in the context here of how the writer's using it, it's important that we remember Psalms 22 has two parts. The first part, that would be verses 1 to 21a was David's words, which were almost, as I just said, Christ verbatim thoughts and words expressed upon the cross. But here in our text, the inspirer is quoting from the second part of Psalm 22. He's quoting verbatim Psalms 22:22, And this half of the psalm, the chapter, it really contains all the declarations of the victorious son. Okay? So, 
why is the inspired writer using something from this part of Psalm 22 to substantiate everything that's been said? Because it's the part of the psalm that is declaring that God will fulfill everything that he said through his promised Messiah. And so here it is, the fulfillment. These many sons have been brought into glory. Therefore, verse 22 from Psalms 22 is looking back on the son's finished suffering and looks forward to his future declarations of his brethren and of his sons that they are in God's covenant family. He says in verse 12, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Here you see this expression of the Messiah giving praise unto the divine plan of the Father, unto the divine faithfulness of the Father, doing everything that the Father said He would do. There was never, of course, a shadow of doubt in the Son's mind. But according to the eternal counsel in Ephesians 1.11 that took place, the Father did everything that he did, he said he would promise to do, and he gave to Jesus on his great exaltation all of these sons, all of these brothers that he wanted to bring into his family. And so we see here a wonderful example of Jesus praising the Father in the midst of all of the church, all of the brethren, all of those who alongside him now share his common cause, share his common heart, share his common love for the Father, His sovereignty, and His wisdom. He uses two other Old Testament verses in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Now I have to admit that while everyone agrees that the first half of verse 13 is a uh, citation of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, A lot of people disagree about the latter part, uh, whether it's uh, Psalms 18, whether it's 2 Samuel, or whether it is, in fact, Isaiah 8, verse 18. After studying out, I'm convinced that what he's doing, he's quoting Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18 together. And so let us consider that. Open up your Bibles in our closing time here to Isaiah 8. And we'll look at verses 17 and 18. to consider how this is shedding light on the overall theme of this victorious captain who has successfully brought into the covenant family, the glorious covenant family of God, these many sons of glory. Now the context here, uh, if you have a study Bible, it's probably showing you this. Isaiah here in the context, he's declaring his warning of the pending judgment from the Assyrians that's going to come in upon Israel. And in this pronouncement of judgment, listen to the words of verses 17 and 18, which I believe are being reiterated here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. I will wait upon the Lord, could be translated, I will trust in the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs, for wonders in Israel, from the Lord of hosts, which delivereth, I'm sorry, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. 
Now, like I said, consider for a moment that Isaiah 18 is in its context predicting the coming of Syrian invasion against Israel. It's a context in which the people had drifted very far away from God's law. And thus, it resulted in a cultivation of their culture that was tempted, as we see in verse 19, of being seduced by familiar spirits are going to familiar spirits, or you could say spiritual mediums, spiritualists. These things are kind of popular, should have absolutely no place in a Christian's life, the people of God. There's television shows nowadays with this, where people want to hear from a dead loved one or someone who's died, so forth and so on. And so the people of God have gone so far that they're entertaining and being tempted to go get answers from spiritualists, or as the text says, those who are wizards. And it's in this dark and this sad context that the prophet felt as though he was the only one telling the culture that he lived in and that he ministered within a message that's recorded in verse 20. You see it right in your Bible there. He's telling them, brethren, nation, if they speak not according to the law and the testimony, there is no light in them. Now, how many of you can sympathize with Isaiah here? right? In our culture today, in your workplace, in your family. That's why I opened up with the thought I opened up with because it comes full circle perfectly right here. When God's law and God's word, which is truth, is the standard, meets our reasoning, our thinking, our opinions, who's always right? His law and his testimony. Anything that seeks or puts a but, oh, I know that's what the Bible says, but immediately they're evidencing their thinking. And this is really what we're always challenging, is people's thinking is demonstrated and has no light in it. Or it's got its view off of the light. And that, and that can happen. That can happen. Okay? So Isaiah here is in this context of feeling as if he's all alone in this dark context. Ah, but God gave him a remnant. God gave him a band of disciples to join with him in the cause of declaring after being long silent, if they speak not according to the law and the testimony, there is no light in them. And while Isaiah felt all alone, while he was tired, while he was weary, dear brothers and sisters, God was faithful by adding unto him a person here, a group there, a person here, still small, very much in the minority, to be as the text says, a sign and a wonder that God was still faithful. Why is the writer of Hebrews using that here? Why? Think for a moment. Here you have the mass of humanity all seen according to God's holiness, according to His righteous standards, unsavable. Undeservingly unsavable. What a sad predicament. What a dark predicament. And here it is that the only one, the captain, the only one who could accomplish a rescue of any of them, let alone many of them, was God's only begotten Son. He trusted and He waited on the Father. And the Father did everything that He said He would do. What an example for us. The church... We sing it in the hymn. Yes, we'll have false sons come from her pale. 
She will, by the world, look defeated. She will, by the world, look like, you know, um, she's just going to sink, you know, so forth and so on. But we see here the way that the writer of Hebrews is employing this prophecy in relationship to the victory and the faithfulness of God. Brothers and sisters, we, are the, we ought to be the people that are the least pessimistic people. Amen? The captain of our salvation, the leader of our salvation, our older brother gave us an example. Let us look unto him, trust and follow his example. Amen? Well, how are we going to apply this time of the word? Well, I'll give you three applications here. First of all, we're approaching the Lord's Supper, beloved. Let us thank Christ afresh for His humiliation, for His willingness. We say to every family dinner, God, thank You for the provisions. We are so deserving, but You are such a good God. You take care of our family. You give us clean water. Down to the little stuff. Brother... I appreciated your prayer. I told Nolan it was such a blessing to my heart. Last Sunday we were around the dinner table on the Lord's Day and I said, Brother, did you hear his prayer? How he just gave God glory for having eyes to see the beauty coming into church. Little stuff like that. And while we're thankful for all of that, brothers and sisters, what are we most thankful for? That Jesus, the captain of our salvation, that he left all the glories above to come and to do what we've been discussing today. So today when we come to the supper, Beloved, thank Him again afresh for His humiliation, for His condescending down to take upon Him the common infirmities, everything that was essential to be a man so that He could stand in our stead to take upon Himself the penalty that we all deserve. And then in response, let us worship Him. Let us worship Christ for His exaltation, for the power that He demonstrated that He accomplished His sister Maria. Let us worship Him, beloved. We are not defeated Christians. Let us worship the captain of our salvation because He has secured our salvation and He will be faithful in accomplishing everything that's connected to that. But secondly, let us look to Christ as we alluded to in the message as the example of how to suffer well. Now some of us have learned this already in life, haven't we? How many of you have learned that grumbling and complaining about a situation really just don't get you nowhere, right? You're going to have to put your head down, uh, put your shoulder, lean into it, and by God's grace, you're going to have to suffer well because you know that's the only way you're going to get through it. But there's still some of us. We get a splinter, we get a stub toe, you know, this or that. It throws us all off of our game, right? Brothers and sisters, look at Jesus' example today who come into time, space, and history and suffered. Oh, did he suffer and suffer well. We see that he suffered obediently. We see that he wasn't in that context of suffering obediently. He wasn't afraid to ask the Father for help. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, praying as a man, if there's any other way, but Lord, nonetheless, let your will be done, not my own. And so we see this submissiveness, this obedience to the providence of the Father's sovereignty and divine will in His suffering. Let us take note of that. Let us suffer well in obedience to the providence that God hands out. Let us do it trustingly. Uh, Referring back to Psalms 22 and Isaiah 8. Let us do it rejoicefully in our sufferings. Isn't it amazing how when other Christians you're around are going through real sufferings, 
whether it be life-threatening health conditions or persecutions. Isn't it amazing how precious their words are? You want to hear them talk. You want to be around them. You want to listen to them because despite the level of suffering they're going through, oftentimes they're the most humble and rejoiceful people. Have you ever noticed that? I certainly have experienced that. Let us, like Christ, rejoice, brothers and sisters, in our suffering, trusting in the faithfulness of God that He has a plan, Romans 8, 28, for everything that comes into our lives. Thirdly, and lastly, let us follow the example of our Savior, our Captain and older brother, and give praise unto the Sovereign God and Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, for His wonderful plan of redemption by which He reconciled us wayward sinners unto himself. And so the text today in the message really begins with God and it ends with God, doesn't it? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you with very humble hearts of just truly a wonderful display of your gospel. That is the good news of how ill-deserving sinners may be reconciled or brought into as sons and daughters of glory into your presence, into your adopted covenant family through a suffering Messiah. Lord, we are marveled. uh, We are astonished at your divine plan. And let us never grow dim. Let us never grow cold of hearing the old, old story. I pray as we approach the supper, that we afresh, as we just mentioned, just all worship Christ. We thank Christ for His humiliation and everything that it costed Him. And we give You thanks, honor, and glory for Your wonderful plan of bringing us and reconciling us back unto Yourself. We are so humbled, Lord, by Your grace in our lives. We're so humbled by what You're doing with us as a people. We're so humbled, Lord, by your faithfulness and what you still will yet do as you have promised. Help us, our faith is weak. Help us, we pray, to be stronger and to follow after the footsteps by your endearing and your uh, enabling grace of our older brother, our captain of this wonderful salvation that we've been given, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to follow him. We bless you and we thank you in his holy name. Amen.